We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed. Here he is to say good afternoon to you and you and you (laughs) on this Wednesday edition, the second day of October in full swing here, the final quarter of the year. And as we head into today's program, wow, we've got a pretty full agenda. A little bit later on, we're going to talk with a retired NASA aerospace engineer who um, began investigating why there seemed to be so many educational challenges to the notion of um, creationism. And, and that while a growing number of the scientific community support intelligent design, it seems as if some are almost terrified of the notion that it might be taught publicly in such a fashion to raise questions about the theory of evolution. So we'll talk a bit about that coming up a little bit later on. There's, um, there's also a growing concern over um, what's taking place in public education, particularly in relationship to California's um, AB 329. And Karen England with the Capital Resource Institute is going to join us to um, give some insights into what seems to be a nationwide push by Planned Parenthood to get states at the educational level to implement uh, these so-called programs that essentially are just to call them for what they are. They're an agenda to sexualize the minds of our young children. That's, that's just simply what they are. And um, more and more states are being coerced into this under the guise of providing sex education to our students. So we'll find out how, uh, how we can best respond. So that'll be coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. We'll lead off with news that um, a few months ago, before the beginning of the current Supreme Court session, uh, the court granted a um, senatorii, which essentially is a approval to review a lower court decision or ruling that specifically deals with the question of Title X regulations, part of the Civil Rights Act of 1963, as it relates to discrimination, but more narrowly defined discrimination as, for example, when it comes to transgender individuals in the employment realm. And this is important because, as we've talked about here for many years now, this is also a growing part of an agenda. And um, I think we need to be very cautious in terms of, yes, protecting people's rights. Um, We have constitutionally protected God-given rights that we have to make sure are are assured for all Americans. And yet sometimes, sometimes there can be a secondary agenda at foot 
that may ultimately, in the effort of trying to protect the rights of one group of people, end up trampling upon the rights of another group of people. Let's find out more. Constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, joins us. Counselor, um, give us a little bit of background here. When the court says, gee, we've got a couple of three cases here that seem to raise some interesting questions that we're going to review, what exactly does this mean? Well, it's very important, it's very timely, and it will have a major impact moving forward regarding the application of Title VII to uh, sex discrimination or things uh, presumably uh, associated with sex discrimination, uh, like uh, transgender uh, or sexual orientation. Um, There are several cases. One is out of the Second Circuit, and uh, this case, uh, Express versus Zarda, it's uh, a case where an employee was uh, discriminated against because of their sexual orientation. That was the the allegation. And uh, and in that case, the court said, hey, you know what? the Title VII, you know, prohibits discrimination, quote, because of sex, and therefore um, we're going to say sexual orientation is under that, and we're going to include that. Even though um, the legislative history would in no way points that that was the intent uh, when Title VII was drafted by any of the lawmakers to have that kind of application. Then the 11th Circuit, Craig, in uh, Bostock versus Clayton County in Georgia, uh, a more conservative circuit, I might add, uh, similar facts in their employment discrimination based on sexual orientation. They went the other way, and they said, they said, uh, no, this is um, this is not what Title VII was intended. And then a third case deals with transgender uh, status, and in that case, that's out of the Sixth Circuit. Uh, Sixth Circuit uh, declared that um, you know that this situation where a gentleman was a man was working for a small uh, family-run you know, funeral home. Um, and he came out and says, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a woman. I'm going to now start dressing like a woman. Um, I'm going to start the transition. I'm going to look like a woman. I'm going to start dressing like a woman. Well, they said, the employer says, uh, no, not in our funeral home serving people um, that we serve. Uh, we don't believe that, that, that uh, that's right in God's eyes. Um, that goes against our faith. We're not going to allow that. That's an interesting question because there's a, 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 an element of religious freedom there in this case. Um, competing with this uh, this right that they're trying to read into Title VII to apply it to people who have uh, gender identity dysphoria. And the problem here, of course, is that we've kind of we've kind of opened up this this can of worms. Uh, largely, you know, when Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner, came out and uh, began to kind of beat the drum. Uh, on on this issue now more often than not you've got issues where people are trying to be respectful trying to kind of maintain a live and let live and yet as i suggested in my opening remarks in the effort to try and protect the rights of one class or group of people now suddenly the rights of another group of people are being trampled upon and there doesn't seem to be any easy middle ground here the fear of course is um, as as more and more courts take a lenient view toward this, as you suggested, if this was coming out of the um, Ninth Circuit of Court of Appeals, you'd say, "Ah, oh, well, you know, business as usual, right?" Um, but it 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 sets up a very fascinating quandrum here of how do you protect the rights of one group without violating the rights of another? Yeah, I think I think the first question that the court needs to ask is what was title intended to say and apply to. And if they ask that question, it's closed shut. 
it wasn't intended to apply to sexual orientation, was not intended to apply to transgender or people with a, a gender identity dysphoria mental condition uh, at all. Well, certainly if you Excellent. look at the timing of the of the of the uh, the legislation in 1963, I mean, we we know. Uh, you know, it, it's fairly easy to come to a conclusion. We're not trying to reach back 250 years into the minds of the founding fathers. Uh, 1963 is not all that long ago. Right. So that, that, that's real easy to answer. And now, the next question is one of policy. You know, okay, should we have uh, laws adopted um, and that, you know, that, that would give such protection? And if so, how far does that protection go? Does it simply ignore religious freedom rights? of a, you know, private businesses? Does it ignore the economic impact of a business? I mean, you could have a car dealer across the street theoretically have someone apply for a job with a competitor, uh, their, their big competitor, and then 90 days later that person comes out, the reception person says, I'm going to be transitioned, they have a beard, but they've got dressed like a woman with makeup, uh, spooking customers, uh, you know, causing theoretically him have you know serious loss in sales, possibly going out of business. I mean, to what extent should should that be a part of the equation in understanding um, the fairness to someone who's built up a business to have it squashed uh, potentially by a competitor? Well, or, let me let me make this even more complex here. What if we are dealing with, say, a a private school that's not necessarily a religious institution, but a private school? that has hired a PE teacher uh, to teach boys PE and now decides um, halfway through the school year to transition to be a woman, uh, what about the appropriateness of that, particularly if the PE teacher is going to be what, continue to have access to the boys' locker room? I mean, this, this you know, the, the minute you start to pull back the layers of the onion here, this can get really complicated really quickly. Yeah, and, and, and we're talking, like your, I like your example better, because we're talking in that situation not about lost profits. We're talking about uh, impacting young boys or young girls, if you flip the facts, in the girls' locker room, um, and exposure to something that um, could actually be very counterproductive for what they may be individually dealing with themselves. Well, that's right, not only psychologically, but even the right to, the right to privacy. I mean, you know, right. I, right. as a man, do I want a woman uh, running around inside of the, the, the gym and the men's locker room? Probably not. And ladies, you have a right to say the same thing. Uh, you know, so it, it uh, yeah, it gets, it gets complicated quick. Right, and that's why it needs to be resolved in the legislature, in Congress. They need to work through the facts, work through scenarios, decide you know, and the big picture, and then the the, the details. Um, it shouldn't be decided. Um, should be decided by judicial activism trying to read something into Title Seven. It just simply isn't there. Well, and um, sadly, though, under the current scenario, the likelihood of anything happening from a legislative standpoint, at least for the moment, uh, is is probably nil. And um, given at least the current makeup of uh, Congress, maybe that's a good thing. Who's to say? Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Thank you for the update. Information available on the web, pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. All right, let's pivot next to a look at traffic here at 516, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have long held that the California State Legislature here 
In our fair state tends to pass legislation that's a little bit out there, using the term loosely, and um, particularly as it relates to education, the passing of agendas promoted by organizations like Planned Parenthood. There's been a long history of that taking place. You'd largely think that, well, this is something that they've kind of focused on more liberal states, New York, California, etc. Well, as we're about to hear, oh, no, 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 they're trying to take this agenda nationally, and they're having, in fact, some uh, some success with it, as Karen England explains, executive director of the Capital Resource Institute. Uh, Karen, I think you and I have in the past have had a chance to even talk about uh, AB 329 and the agenda that it has in, in essentially sexualizing, uh, you know, first and second graders on down. And it just, it's, 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 it's really shocking and astonishing, uh, the agenda that's present in this curriculum but now to see that they're trying to export it to even the Midwest. What's going on? Well, absolutely. You know, thanks for having me. And you guys know um, what happens in California doesn't stay in California. And the Planned Parenthood and the other progressive groups are trying to repeat what they did in California back in 2015 and mandate this very provocative um, sexualizing of our kids in curriculum throughout the nation. And most recently, I think you're talking about Minnesota, where I spoke at a rally a week ago um, of parents wanting to stop this. And then most recently, a day or two ago in Arizona, the same thing. This, in numerous states, is Planned Parenthood's number one piece of legislation. They're putting their time and money into getting this stuff passed so that every state looks like California when it comes to sexualizing our kids. And, and, you know, (laughs) Planned Parenthood likes to come along and say that, you know, they're just simply trying to help facilitate um, education for children. Um, But the reality is um, there is a strong component, and I know you're intimately familiar with uh, what's in AB 329. It, It really is more than just teaching kids the basics about anatomy and physiology and, you know, the birds and the bees and where the kids come from. Uh, it it gets down into almost a sexualization, for want of a better term, of young kids at an age when, quite frankly, they should be more focused on playing out in the schoolyard. Well, absolutely. And AB 329, and I will tell you, the Minnesota bill and the other bills throughout the nation that I've looked at are all very, very similar. In addition to sexualizing our kids and it becoming far less about kind of biology and your body changing it's about how to have sex it's an idea that you're all sexual beings and you need to embrace it and figure out how to enjoy sex and here's all the um ways to keep it quote-unquote safe and they're doing this at an early you know earlier and earlier age in minnesota they want to do it in kindergarten in fremont and and san diego they're doing it in elementary school Um, here in California, and it's Planned Parenthood, we're finding out, that is doing a lot of the teaching, especially in California, in place of the teachers. It's so graphic that teachers are refusing to teach it, and so the law back, AB 329, back in 2015, actually changed, so it said you can bring in community people to teach this um, to the kids. They anticipated that teachers would say, no, we're not going to talk about this with our students. And so Planned Parenthood's in our classrooms now. So well, while we're shutting down clinics, we're 
we're getting them younger and younger customers and bringing them into our, our schools with our public tax dollars. And I might argue that it wasn't simply or merely a sense of anticipation that this would be the reaction by um, school teachers, but rather that it was designed that way, knowing that if they made people feel uncomfortable enough, it would open up a door of opportunity for them to step in and basically use this as a propaganda tool. Uh, you mentioned, as you've looked at similar bills across the country that there seems to be sort of a consistent thread here in terms of how far they go. Uh, do you get the sense that there's a single driving force behind these measures in other states that look so similar to California? And might Planned Parenthood be the driving force behind that similarity? Uh, well, I believe it's Planned Parenthood and the Human Rights Campaign, the pro-gender um, fluidity. And yeah, yeah, I, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. And they're clearly, like, in California, they actually sponsored the bill. And, and you can see for the record who, who helped write the bill and who brought it to the legislature. And it was Planned Parenthood, Equality California, and several other So when they're coming into the schools, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, Karen, when they're coming into the schools, are they doing this simply because they're trying to drum up, you know, a, a future customer base? Or, or do they actually get compensation for this? Is there, are there tax dollars going to help facilitate this so-called curriculum? That's a great question. Uh, we just did a public records request on every school district throughout the state of California, and we're starting to get the information back. But they're getting paid. They're being paid to do the training. Sometimes they're being paid to do the workshops for teachers. Sometimes they're being paid, whether it's Planned Parenthood or some of the um, pro-LGBTQ centers, they're being paid to come into the school and teach during the time. Absolutely, there's money for them there. And then there's also this idea with Planned Parenthood, and this was in AB 329, and it's in the Minnesota bill and several others. It was written in that every single school district in California must tell each community, so every community is different, about what local resources the minors can access for birth control, STIs, and abortion. And so there's this component that locally, not only is Planned Parenthood going in and training the teacher and sometimes teaching the class, but in the curriculum it's telling you here are the three different places you can go to get dental dams, birth control and an abortion without your parents knowing. Yeah, I, I've always found it fascinating and, and and astonishing that in California, if your 14-year-old daughter goes to the school nurse and complains of a headache, that nurse may not, by law, administer an aspirin without parental consent. But the same 14-year-old girl can present herself to the school nurse and say, I uh, am a little late. Can I get a pregnancy test? And that young girl can not only have a pregnancy test administered, but then be given information and facilitation to a abortion clinic to have an abortion performed, and the parent doesn't get to know a thing about it whatsoever. Boy, isn't that isn't that brilliant uh, 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 piece of legislation? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna share something that's, that's that takes it even a step further. In California, a school district may, which also they also can can have a policy that does not allow this. That school nurse or math teacher or whoever may excuse that child to go have that abortion or pregnancy test all done during the school day and mark them at, mark them as if they were in class but they still get the ADA money. And that is what is written into all these local curriculums. There are a majority of the California school districts 
have a policy that says we're going to let you exercise your quote-unquote right to privacy during school hours and we're going to lie to the parents and basically falsify records um, saying you were here in order to quote-unquote respect your right to privacy. Wow, boy, your your tax dollars hard at work, huh? Absolutely. And (laughs) so now these, these, you know, they're putting their values in place of the parents. They're taking on a lot of liability and we think our kids are in class and they're really all... I mean, I would have used this as an excuse to get out of class all the time. I would have told the school I had to go get a confidential medical service. You know, they, they can't check and find out what you're doing. And so um, kids are doing it throughout throughout California. Well, not only, as you indicate, can they not check up as to what you're up to, but they're also forbidden from communicating that information to your parents. I mean, boy, talk about a tale wags dog scenario there it is um it's it's astonishing and i appreciate uh, so much karen you taking the time to come on and tell us about uh, your experience and what you're learning as uh, measures like ab 329 that's law here in california are being pushed promoted and rolled out in other states across the country information about the work of capital resource institute on the web at capitalresource.org that's capitalresource.org and We'll have to have Karen England back once they've compiled all that data as to exactly um, how much of your taxpayer dollars are um, going to help fund Planned Parenthood so that they might come in and provide the public service of teaching your your, your children about sex education. Wow. Just astonishing. 531, our thanks to Karen England, Executive Director of the Capital Resource Institute. Let's get a look at what's going on in the world of traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation, 536 on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. And it's, uh, it's fascinating. If you have spent any time reading some of the debate between those in the, she call them, evolutionary side of things, and those on the other side of the equation, that would be squarely in the intelligent design or creationism side, and that historically has been sort of set up as, uh, well, one side is faith-dominant, the other is science-dominant, never the two shall meet. But ironically, we're finding a growing number of members of the scientific community that are saying, hold on, wait just a minute. I never checked my brains at the door when I began researching the claims of creationism. And in fact, as I have looked into this, an abundance of evidence that supports the biblical account of how we all got here um, is very much underscored in the scientific community. And so this rush to judgment and suggest that one is faith-based and the other is science-based is uh, mildly um, distorted. And I say mildly because there is a major component of faith that's necessary. But as my next guest might suggest, the biggest part of faith in believing the two um, opposing viewpoints on this probably requires more faith to believe in evolution than it does in creationism. My guest is Jay Schaubacher. 
He is a retired NASA aerospace engineer, and he's written a new book called Scientific Challenges to Evolutionary Theory, How These Challenges Affect Religion. And Jay, great to have you with us. Yes, thank you. I want to mention that the very important thing coming up, it's Friday. Take your Bible to school day. Friday. That's right, it is indeed. In fact, we're going to be talking about that coming up a little bit later on in the program. Yeah, because yeah, uh, I am very concerned about uh, the, the children and uh, the culture that we're trying to teach them. Uh, and I'll discuss that in a minute. Uh, but uh, you're right. Uh, let me say that atheist Michael Roos has made a statement. He's an he's a evolution-type guy. He says, uh, ev- uh, evolution is a religion. He says that we, we all know that as evolutionists, we take it by faith, it's a religion. So you, here you have uh, a so-called religion evolution, that does not have science on their side, so they go on hope and chance. Of course, the Christian religion, we have the Holy Bible on our side, and I believe every word in the Bible is true. We're a six-day creation, and that's been my faith for years and years, and I've I've been writing about it, um, speaking about it, for quite a while. Uh, take us back. You you had taken a trip to the Pacific Northwest and had gone to see the carnage left over following the um, the explosion of no, Mount St. Helens. Uh, in fact, just 38 years ago this past May. And when you were there, uh, you asked a question that ultimately um, sort of opened up a door all this time later for you to say, you know, there, there needs to be more balance of information. Tell me about that experience. Well... Well, uh, my wife and I were taking a trip, uh, northeast trip to Washington, and uh, yes, of course, we went to Mount St. Helens, and I was excited, my wife was excited uh, to see what transpired very, very quickly at that volcano eruption, and uh, the catastrophic circumstances of it, and maybe it's, uh, it certainly shows uh, what God did way back, you know, years ago. And so I went up to the book stand, and I asked the salesperson there, and I said, uh, Sir, do you have any books showing the Christian view of the catastrophics of the Mount St. Helens? And the salesman said, I'm sorry, sir. We only sell books about scientists, written by scientists. And I, I, I took a, a gulp, and I said to myself, "This can't be true." Uh, so I came back home to uh, Columbia, South Carolina, and did some research, and I found out that the uh, evolutionists who are Ph.D. scientists, were very few and far between. And uh, I found that there were a thousand Ph.D. 
creationist scientists that were writing about the truth of the creation, and I found something to write about, and that's why I said, I have got to write about this and, and tell the good people here in, on, on Earth that uh, what the truth is and the Bible's true. And and certainly, I mean, the, one of the, the principal issues is you talk about this notion that there seems to be uh, a huge imbalance, and I think that's largely because while while there is a growing body in the scientific community that is embracing um, the biblical account of creationism, if not at the very least uh, at the at the periphery, the notion of intelligent design. Sadly, they don't they don't get much airtime, do they? I mean, from the standpoint of who winds up getting uh, the amount of, uh, of of coverage on this topic. It is is pretty much swayed entirely toward the evolutionary end of the equation, isn't it? I I, I think the uh, I hate to say it, but I think the devil is in charge of this whole area here, and he has been winning one minor battle after another. I'd like to tell you uh, what I'm really concerned about, and I want to start by giving what I call the evolution time frame, what's been happening uh, to our uh, society. In 1620, the Pilgrims landed and formed a Christian community. Around 1700, Harvard and Yale were founder and Christian principles. 1776, our nation was formed in belief in God, in God we trust. And then Charles Darwin, he's not a real bad guy, but in 1859, he wrote the book, An Origin of Species, which uh, some people say it purported to talk about evolution. And so the, the view was man came from apes. And in 1900, by that time, evolution is now a science, so they said, here the devil was in control. So evolution is taught in the schools. But I'm glad to say that uh, in 1961, at least we started what we call the creation movement, which I'm involved with now. Uh, Dr. Henry Morris wrote uh, Genesis Flood. And from then on, things have happened. We've, we've had a real struggle, scientific creationist organizations have been formed, formed like Institute for Creation Research. And now between 2000 and, and right now, 2019, there's been ties between evolutionary teaching in the school and the negative social consequences of evolution. So that's what concerns me. Not exactly the debate, but the evolution teaching that is telling our kids there is no God, there is no morality re required, uh, and there you have atheism. Then you have rise of unwanted uh, childbirths, rise of drug abuse, social violence. Now uh, we have uh, man aching, acting like apes. So that's what concerns me. What concerns me is uh, the teaching of evolution in schools. Somehow I'd like to see that 
turned around in one way or another. And certainly a huge challenge to that. I mean, at the end of the day, and I think everyone listening to this program to a person or nearly a person can can agree that uh, truth has been a big victim in all of this. Uh, and it's interesting because we see even in an environment today where uh, we find people debunking facts, making, making new ones up, or simply attacking the credibility of the truth teller. Thus, in the case of creationism, it's a lie because the people of faith they teach creationism, and of course we know the people of faith lie about the existence of God, therefore creationism is a lie, because after all, isn't it really truly that man is not a creation of God, but rather God a creation of man? That has long been the approach to this topic, and um, while it is true that there have been severe societal consequences to evolution— and the battle continues to be enjoyed. There are some glimmers of hope here and there. We're going to talk about those as well as we continue our conversation. Our guest today, retired NASA aerospace engineer, Jay Sonnebacher. His new book is called Scientific Challenges to Evolutionary Theory and How These Challenges Affect Religion. The new book, by the way, published by Elm Hill, a division of HarperCollins and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Jay's website, creationclass.org. This time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. 547, an update for you now on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our guest, retired NASA aerospace engineer and author Jay Schaubacher, his new book is called Scientific Challenges to Evolutionary Theory. And you you touched on an important issue before the break, Jay, that I think um, bears highlighting, and that is that while there is a growing body of science scientists who have signed on to the creation um version of how mankind came to be, or at the very least at the periphery, intelligent design, sadly so many of them are being hamstrung or being silenced. Witness, for example, Gunter Belchley. Gunter had been the curator at Stuttgart, Germany's State Museum of Natural History as a very well um, celebrated and respected paleontologist. That was until he came out against evolution and in favor of intelligent design, and he found himself in the middle of a political struggle over the world's origin story, eventually fired from his job, even had his Wikipedia page taken down because somehow he was no longer deemed to be worthy enough because he had embraced intelligent design. Is this sense of trying to silence critics of evolutionary theory, something that's widespread, not only in academia, but but in the educational arena? It, it is definitely. I have heard of so many uh, uh, doctors of science, Ph.D. of scientists, uh, at universities. Uh, they were told that they, if they, if they uh, say anything good about creationism and bad about evolution, then they are going to be fired from their university. They're going to lose all their funding. And I've heard that there's some engineers that say, I'm so sorry, I have to keep my mouth shut. I want to keep my job. And so they're uh, they're just throwing their values 
in the wastebasket. So essentially, they're 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 really uh, almost uh, muzzling then men and women in both the science community as well as academia and saying, look, if you uh, if you come out in favor of this, we're going to punish you. And it could include the possibility of not only being embarrassed, but also losing your job. That's right. Wow. We have, we have in our book, if you can buy the book at Amazon.com, in, in so many categories, uh, the Ph.D. scientists, have just refuted the evolutionary theory. I could tell you for, for a number of merits there, but uh, the DNA of our bodies and the fossil, fossil record that they found uh, supports creation. Now, what's happened is that, that uh, we, we, we are learning more about science every decade. And... Uh, now we've learned so much about scientists that the scientists say that evolution has no way of taking place. The, the Bible has always been right. Uh, for instance, the Bible said uh, the earth is a sphere. That was in Isaiah 40:22. But years ago, so-called smarter people said the earth is a flat disk. And one other item, uh, people looked up in the sky, scientists, and they said there are only 1,100 stars. And the Bible was always right. Uh, Jeremiah 33, verse 22, says there are an incalculable number of stars. So I want all your listeners uh, to know that the Bible, every word of it is right, uh, it has always been right, and I want you to pray about uh, supporting your kids who are going to school. Try to talk to your school boards about, let's get a balance here about uh, teaching a little bit about creation as well as this thing called evolution. And certainly it also is incumbent upon parents to understand that when there is that imbalance that's taking place, my goodness, that's been going on since the Scopes Monkey Trial of the 1920s, uh, nearly a century now, that uh, I think it's incumbent upon parents to bring some of that balance. And there's lots of wonderful resources that are available out there. We've been talking about Jay's new book, Scientific Challenges to Evolutionary Theory. Um, our dear friend Ken Ham with Answers in Genesis, a very important uh, resource. Discovery Institute is another one. Um, you mentioned... Um, our, our, our former colleague, uh, Dr. Henry Morris, who um, went to be with the Lord, oh, I don't know, about a, long about a decade ago, I guess. He was the founder of, of essentially the, the early creation science movement. And a lot of his writings still available on the Internet and uh, books that can be ordered, resources that are available to help you as a parent not only properly educate your child, but equip your son or daughter. Uh, because as, as Jay alluded to earlier, and I think it's true, there almost seems to be a religion about evolution, that it's less about the agenda of trying to conclusively demonstrate how mankind came into being. And I have yet, when we've talked to um, some of these uh, naysayers, been able to get a real straightforward answer to my question. Well, if the Big Bang Theory is true, 
and and out of chaos came all this order, then how come when we see a building destroyed, for example, when it's uh, uh, you know uh, imploded for demolition, that instead of the building uh, falling in a big heap of ashes, it doesn't uh, you know generate itself into a boat or a car or something different, right? I mean, if we get if we get order out of chaos, then then why don't we see any other examples in world history to prove that theory out? I think that reality is that a lot of this is an agenda that if we can disprove God's role in how mankind came to be, then we can more readily dispense with God. And if we can dispense with God, then our need to figure through who he is and our relationship to him uh, suddenly disappears. And so it lets mankind essentially off the hook, which we've been trying to do ever since uh, um, questioning the the, uh, the one rule we were given in the Garden of Eden, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we've been in trouble ever since. Jay, I appreciate the time. It's a great book and a wonderful resource available. As Jay mentions, uh, you can get it at Amazon.com. His website, again, is creationclass.org, creationclass.org. Scientific Challenges to Evolutionary Theory, How These Challenges Affect Religion. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's get you an update on traffic right now.